I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am so delighted to be sitting across the table from Rebecca Solnit today. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Rebecca is the author of more than 20 books, including A Field Guide to Getting Lost, The Far Away Nearby, and Wanderlust. She's also the author of Men Explain Things to Me and many essays on feminism, activism, and social change, hope, and the climate crisis. Her new memoir is called Recollections of My Non-Existence. So happy to have you here. I'm such a LitHub fan, and I'm so happy to be here. I've described your memoir <laughs> as a memoir of more of how you came to think, like a coming of age for your mm-hmm. brain. Yeah, but but not just my brain, my psyche. And it's really mm. two narratives, one of which is about finding a voice as a writer, which is something every writer has to do. The other is about the circumstances I, like every other woman, endured that attempt to silence you and render you voiceless, unbelievable, Mm -hmm. not a full participant in your own life or anything else. Yeah, you mention um, the idea that young women are nobody is a a common thing. I wrote an essay for Harper's a few years ago called Nobody Knows about how there are people out there who do things to people who are supposed to be nobody And the people who are supposed to be big somebodies never know about it. You know, for example, Dominique Strauss-Kahn assaulted a a hotel worker in in New York City in 2011. And one of his very fancy, high-profile friends said, this is not the man I know. This is impossible. And it's like, dude, he's got a double life like a lot of creeps do. And we find out with Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. who's being sentenced, and so many other people... Did got away with doing things to people who are supposed to be nobody in the sense that nobody would believe them, nobody would listen to them, that they could be silenced. 
And so we live in a world that is not a democracy of voices, which I think is my great feminist ideal, not to silence anybody, but to give voice to those who haven't had enough and to not give others so much voice that they can use it to talk over, silence, discredit others, which is what's happened so much around violence against women. I wrote about the Weinstein case. Yeah. If the woman he, if the first person he assaulted had had as much audibility, credibility, and power as he did, um, he could have assaulted her physically. She could have spoken up. She would have been believed. There would have been consequences, and there wouldn't have been a second case. But I, you know, more than ninety women reported he assaulted them, and it wasn't just his physical capacity. It was that radical inequality of voice. So this is a book about voice. What does it mean to not have one? What does it mean to make one? What are the circumstances in which women's voices do and don't appear? And you talk about in this book, it's been it's been more than a decade since men explained things to me, which is, it, it feels so seminal, that you realize that the main ideal of that book is credibility and who gets it and who's allowed to have it. Well, that essay, which indeed would be a tween in middle school if it were a child and not an essay. Yeah, I write in this book that I had long thought the key sentence in The Men, Men Explain Things, the essay from 2008, not the book from 2014, <laughs> which was a collected, that that was the title essay for the, for the book with Haymarket. But I wrote that credibility is a basic survival tool. And then... As I continued to think about this, I realized it's not a tool because a tool is something you hold in your own hands and you decide what to do with it. Right. Credibility is something other people give you or withhold from you. And we see, for example, in the Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Christine Blasey Ford thing, she, by many of our criteria, was an extraordinarily credible person. Yes. He was histrionic, self-pitying, weepy, red-faced, ragey, ridiculous, <laughs> and already proven to have lied in his own hearing. And we saw that a woman can be infinitely credible and it doesn't matter. A man can be literally incredible and it doesn't matter in a society that has pre-assigned one of them too much voice and the other none at all. And then when you have a woman who isn't Christine Blasey Ford, who isn't the perfect yes. uh, victim in, in the eyes of the law, uh, then it gets even more complicated. One, one thing that I hope people notice in this book is that I describe some awful things that men did to me in publishing as well as yes. in you know physical menace and threat and assault. But the crux of those stories isn't that this guy was following me home late at night in a very threatening way that this person that I got, you know, mugged that I had a deranged publicist trying really hard to bury a book. Mm. It was that when I told people, they just looked at me and conveyed in elegant, sophisticated ways like, oh, little girl, you young women are all so overwrought. You don't know what's what. Um, you just calm down, which was a way right. of saying – fuck you, it didn't happen, we're so not valid. interested, we're not going to listen to you. And so, and that's what's happened so much. You know, it's not that one person does a terrible thing, they get away with a terrible thing because everyone else around them props them up and shuts her down. And I had that experience in professional as well as 
you know, kind of street encounter related right. uh, situations. And it matters. It matters. And I'm only now beginning to realize that essentially as a young woman, I had no voice. I had no voice to say, no, leave me alone because right. that only makes them angrier. I had no voice to say this just happened to me because people treated me as a person as I was writing non-fictional books of history, as a person who didn't really know what just happened with that person on the phone, what just happened yesterday. And that happens to all of us. And this book is so much not about what's exceptional about my experience, although I've had a peculiar trajectory as a writer and as a person <laughs> in some ways, but what's ordinary about it? Right. What is the condition of being voiceless, of being the nobody who knows? What is the, you know, and how that made me a feminist and how the triumph of this book is not that I found a voice and wrote a bunch of books. The triumph of this book is that we created a feminist conversation that really opened everything up in an extraordinary new way, starting really around 2012 mm -hmm. and being part of that conversation, learning from it, participating in it, hearing all these stories has been what I hope for so much, you know, as a young woman, I couldn't find anyone to listen to me the way that we're talking now about what was happening, that it was wrong, that we needed to change everything. Instead, everyone was just telling me to accept male violence as something we were not going to talk about. We were not going to try and change. We're just going to treat it like whether, you know, wear an umbrella, wear, wear your, wear your shoes, no, wear your waterproof boots, bring an umbrella, it might rain. Right. You know, we're just going to accept that lots of men want to rape you and some of them want to kill you and others of them are going to harass you and threaten you and get into your space at parties and on public transit and in your workplace. And it's your job to cope with it. It's nobody's job to prevent it. It's not their job to stop being predators. If you like podcasts like the Maris Review, then you'll love Kobo audiobooks. Listening to audiobooks let you fit more reading time into your life. Even when I'm stress eating or cleaning, I love to listen to an audiobook to get me out of my own head. There are two great ways to save. You can start an audiobook subscription and get your first book free. The book is yours to keep even if you cancel. And then every month afterwards, pay just $9.99 and you can choose an audiobook from the Kobo catalog, regardless of the price. Some audiobooks can cost upwards of $35 or $40, so a Kobo subscription is the best way to save money every single month. Or two, you can use the code MARIS40 to get 40% off one of their select audiobooks curated by Kobo's audiobook experts. To get started, visit Kobo.com slash Maris Review. Start listening to Kobo audiobooks today. Once again, that's Kobo.com slash Maris Review. And it was so poignant when you wrote about, I mean, you've written about the joy you find in walking so yeah. much. And the idea that if you were harassed on the street, that maybe you should stay in or you should yeah. look down or n not react. 99% of what young women have been told and little girls and everyone in between 
is that it's entirely their job to prevent male violence, um, which you might think of as male, the male, a male job, and that they're going to do it by curtailing their freedoms. You can't drink this. You can't go there. You can't do that. Right. You can't say that. You can't go alone. You can't go far. You can't. You can't, you can't, you can't. And I was told that. My friend Heather Smith said, said it in a way that was so powerful, it kind of shocked me, even though I was writing about it. She said, as a young woman, you're constantly told to picture your own murder. And, you know, we have heard from black parents about the talk they give to their yes. sons. And I think it's great we're talking about it, about how police and security guards and other men with guns are liable to kill them for no good reason because of racism. We haven't had a, the conversation I hope we would have about what does it do to little girls and young women to tell them they constantly must give up being free and equal because men want to harm them, and we're not actually going to try and stop men from harming them. We're going to stop... The vi we're not going to stop the perpetrators. We're going to try and stop the victim from being free and equal and so many people find that a completely appropriate and acceptable thing. I do think we have to do what it takes to be safe, but I also think we need to change the world. And that's something that was really important to me writing this book. So many memoirs are framed as personal in the sense that what happened to me happened to me personally. And I addressed it by making, I left my abuser. I went through some sort of liberatory therapeutic process to right. overcome, to heal, to resolve, to move on. And what I really wanted to say is like, no, because I was not just impacted by what almost happened to me and what could still happen to me and what did happen to me. I was impacted by what happened to women like me, by which I mean all women, not mm -hmm. just, you know, my kind of white girl back then. And I, you know, it could still happen. And the only solution I think is adequate is to change everything. You know, I read about violence against women every day, not because I'm looking for it, but because all of us who read the news are, I'm just the weirdo who notices <laughs> like some days, like seven out of 10 stories on the front page of the Guardian newspaper in one way or another are about Epstein and Weinstein and Trump and you know, the protests in Mexico against the violence against women there and stuff. And it's like, actually, so much of the news is about violence against women. Let's connect the dots. Let's yes. say this is a pattern. Let's, as with Corona violence, call it an epidemic. And then let's respond. And that's what I think feminism has been doing much more effectively in recent years. But it should be treated as a public health emergency, as a civil rights emergency, a human rights emergency, and recognized not just as something where either you were physically impacted, you were actually raped, you were actually beaten, but as something that impacts all of us because most women one way or another, you know, every day or for a whole stretch of their lives or when they were growing up, had to think about, how am I going to avoid getting assaulted? What will I do if I'm raped? How can I not be the girl in my dorm who was murdered? How can I not be my mother who was battered, et cetera, et cetera? It, you know, as I say in this book, it gets you even if it doesn't get you it, because you have to, your mind is full of violence and it contaminates your freedom and confidence and your 
freedom, among other things, to think about other things and go where you want. Right. And so it impacted me as a walker, first of all. Um, and, I, and I, in the book, you compare climate change to discrimination in that um, you can't say one particular event is due to climate change if it's pouring outside. It's not necessarily linked to climate change, but you can detect patterns. Yeah, because one thing that happens to people a lot when they try and report racism or misogyny or something Mm -hmm. is they're told that, oh, they're hypersensitive, they're imagining things, they're reading too much into it, etc. And something we've seen with climate change, or I've come to understand as somebody who's also a climate activist, is scientists saying we cannot necessarily say this individual hurricane, tornado, heat wave, freak cold snap is due to climate change, but we can say that it's consistent with a pattern that is due to climate change. And the same happens with these things that add up in your life if you're being discriminated against. You know, it's not even worth having the argument about whether it was or wasn't sometimes. It's just like, look, there's a big pattern of this happening to people in my category. Because I not only wrote about things that are undeniably gendered of street harassment and menace and right. and threats and things like that, I also wrote about some of the really freakishly hostile experiences I had my first few years with my first few books in publishing. Yes. And um, and that's where I think people might be like, oh, you're just imagining that this publicist and this editor and this publisher and this um, guy who wrote in a letter trying to kill your book and this man who th- uh, said he wouldn't press a libel suit if all copies of your book were destroyed, destroyed. that these are just random things that happen to everybody. And, um, you know, maybe not. And you name names. I do. I do. <laughs> Which... Refreshing. You know, um, I think, and I think we get to say this on podcasts, I am definitely in a no fucks left to give position. (laughs) You know, they're not people I need to worry about. And I think it's really useful to tell the truth about what happened, not out of malice, but to bear witness. And one of the things that has happened, and we can see this with people like Weinstein and Trump, but with even cases of workplace harassment and discrimination, et cetera, is they expected that nobody would ever call them on it. They Mm -hmm. expected it would never be discussed. And that has so much to do with why it happens. And so therefore discussing it is a healthy thing and also a healthy thing because it helps people who've had similar and analogous experiences say, yeah, that happened to me too. And it matters. It impacted me. Yeah, I um one of the things that I've heard more than I would like to admit is that there are many women who think the Me Too movement has gone too far. And I love that you are making two two middle fingers. That I think of as the Beyonce gesture because she made it so <laughs> amazingly in for the formation video. Yes. You know, I can't sing like her, but I can at least flip a bird like her. And you, I mean, very early in the book, you say that wanting better for the next generation is is important to you. And it's, yeah. I can't... Imagine not feeling that, not wanting to be that generous. You know, I think that, you know, I think the majority of women do support what we call Me Too, which I call feminism because Me Too is just a little 
eruption in the middle of a big wave of feminism that launched in 2012 that came out of the feminist movement that relaunched in the 60s and really begins with Mary Wollstonecraft, right. um, impacted by the French Revolution to give it its proper maternal genealogy. <laughs> and I did a piece actually at LitHub called This Thing Has Gone Too Far, by which I meant violence against women, and that the reaction will have gone far enough when there is no more violence and discrimination and silencing and oppression of women. So yeah, I know that women get, re that, you know, there's a few pet writers out there who get rewarded by yes. Um, male editors or publishers for saying what men want to hear. And absolutely, I have argued that we need to have more elegant and nuanced understanding of the difference between this guy who is like a sloppy, friendly puppy who is clueless and this right. guy who scared the bejesus out of people and this one who physically assaulted and threatened people. But God knows it hasn't gone nearly far enough. Oh. And uh, so, yeah. And I wrote this book partly because I know these things are still happening to young women. They're still facing so many kinds of silencing and harassment and discrimination. And so much of it is not just the physical violence, which has been acknowledged, but the violence against voices so that they can't be heard or won't be believed. Or the worst thing of all almost, which happens when you're heard, you're believed, but they still nothing happens where people are like, yeah, yeah. he did that. So what? You That's don't matter. How he is. You have no value. You just need to get used to a world in which men want to commit felonies that we won't treat as felonies. And you have no rights even to bodily integrity and, do you know, uh, agency over your own physical reality. Or you're not fun. <laughs> yeah, well, no, so much of it. And, you know, because I grew up in the 80s, which was such a grotesque, probably a little, I don't know if it was less or more misogynist than, it was not a good decade, let's say. <laughs> and if you tried to talk about that stuff, it was always like, oh, it's no big deal. He was just joking, be a good sport, etc. You know, and actually that Harper's piece called Nobody Knows begins with me at 18 and I almost wish I hadn't used it there because it really belonged in this book. Mm -hmm. I was a bus boy, since I don't think we say bus girl, at a restaurant. The creepy old bleary-eyed alcoholic cook used to grab my ass out of sight from the front of the the diner. Um, I knew at that point in time nobody gave a damn about my bodily integrity and the fact that it creeped me out and rattled me. And that complaining would have done nothing and might have made the guy get really angry at me. So I did the sneaky, underhanded kind of stuff women get blamed for, but that you do when you don't have a voice. I made sure the next time he grabbed me, I was holding a full tray of glasses and I screamed and dropped them. And it made much more noise than I felt I was allowed to make in the world. Right. And the boss cared a whole lot more about the bodily integrity of drinking glasses than me. And the boss did not want to lose more glasses. And he chewed the chef out and told him to never do it again. And the chef actually chef's too fancy a word, you know, like short order cook, <laughs> right. knew that, um, you know, I'd tr that, that I'd pulled this on him and he was pissed off and he never touched me again. And that was the kind of crazy stuff I felt like I had to do, you know, and, and that moment I was able to do, I spent most of my life 
avoiding, evading, being really good at disappearing, not showing up, being silent, feeling like I couldn't speak up because it would only make it worse if I spoke up to the perpetrator. And so many women do have that experience. They speak up and the guy gets angry. One of Weinstein's victims said saying no seemed to excite him, which is what people don't always understand. And there's this whole, well, why didn't she say anything, which in a world with a democracy of voices makes perfect sense when we can all use our words as mothers and admonish their children. Right. But when it will only incite someone to go after you harder, speaking up is not necessarily a good option. When no one will believe you, speaking up is not a good option. Thus, this book about the writer's job of forming a voice, Mm. but the woman's situation of not having a voice and what that means for all of us. And even, I I didn't realize until I read the book that the cover art is a photo of you. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's, it's stunning. But I hadn't realized that you were attempting to be a little less visible even in, in the space of this photo. Well, the man who took the picture, I didn't feel entirely comfortable around. And so the picture out of all the pictures I had of me as a youth made me, you know, the picture out of all the pictures I had of myself from this era I wrote about felt like the right one because I'm all dressed up like I want to show up and appear and be somebody. Yeah. But I've got my back turned to the camera and I you can see from the gesture and the face, this real sense of tentativeness, like I'm shrinking away. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of a shrinking violet and a wallflower, often literally, and <laughs> um, looking for the edge and the wall and the margin to be next to. And um, and the picture, I think, really conveys that, that predicament I think all young women face. You want to appear, you want to be somebody, you know that being nobody, not appearing is the safest thing you can do, that there's so many kinds of risk involved in appearing. In some ways, that's true for everyone. Everyone can be snubbed, everyone can be ridiculed. But young women face an epidemic of violence in a society that turns a blind eye to it and blames them for it. And that means, you know, you take this job, you go on this trip, you go to this party, and terrible things can happen. And as I said earlier, you know, you're always told it's on you to prevent them. Right. So should you show up? Should you not show up? You know, and so far we've blamed everyone who wasn't a nun in a (laughs) habit holding a bazooka while locked in a bank vault for what happened to her. Right. And as a side note, the clothes are magnificent. And you you did all of your shopping in those days at thrift stores. Thrift stores and vintage stores and things like that. Hand-me-downs, actual free boxes, etc. But this is a man's vest, a low-cut man's vest turned backwards so it's low cut in the back um cinched around my then rather tiny waist I was also really scrawny in those days and the bottom half of a 1940s suit I'd gotten you know for 20 bucks or something plus very cheap satin evening gloves and a little black hat with a veil so sophisticated for someone who was trying hard yeah so, so unsophisticated about who I was and how I felt and how to connect to other human beings and what a good life would look like. And, but, you know, but I found a few nice clothes. (laughs) And you, and you found a great apartment. Yes. And that's where the book begins. 
And this has been such a curious book for me. Some books which I write about things that are further removed from my own life. I feel like I know exactly what I'm doing. I know if I've done it. I know if it's good. I books like my book about Edward Muybridge, my book about disaster, a paradise built in hell, hope in the dark. This book was so close and personal. It's like something too close to even focus your eyes. It was blurry. And now I'm realizing it begins with me how, well, it begins with me watching myself disappear in the mirror as I black out in the apartment I would spend 25 years in early in that era. Because did I mention I was a, I was like a scrawny kid, low, low blood pressure, low blood sugar who yes. passed out every now and again. <gasps> but that apartment is where the book really begins. I was house hunting the week after Ronald Reagan's inauguration in 1981. I ended up in a black neighborhood in San Francisco, the Western Edition, because that's where oh, some of the affordable housing was. And I saw this beautiful, beautiful apartment and I wanted it so badly. And I went downstairs to the building manager who let me in. And he, I told him I wanted it. And it was just clear how fervently I wanted it. He's the kindest man. He said, well, if you want it, you should have it. And he handed me the application. And my heart sank because I had already filled out that application for another apartment, brought it to the slumlord management company. <laughs> and a man had literally dropped it in the wastebasket next to his desk as I looked on because I didn't make enough money. And I told this black man who'd managed the building for many years, been in the neighborhood almost since World War II, that this is what I wanted, but that they, you know, they literally dumped me. And he said, well, you know, find someone, find a respectable middle-aged lady to apply and I'll never <laughs> tell them it any different. So although this is a book about the terrible things many men did to me, it begins with extraordinarily generous and altruistic thing this complete stranger, this black man of 60, did for me one Sunday when I was 19 and poor and friendless. And it felt like a really, you know, he literally gave me refuge. And as I say in the book, it was a bigger gift than any of us realized than either it was a bigger gift than either of us realized because he would die eight years later of prostate cancer. But I would stay there in that apartment for twenty five years and thanks to his kindness and the city of San Francisco's rent control policy, I had a very affordable home all those years, mm. which allowed me to go out as a freelance writer and not make very much money for a very long time and take some risks that I might not have been able to afford to otherwise. And yes, young people who are listening, I know how much more bleak the economy is. It's why I wanted Elizabeth Warren to be president. It's why I want a radically different economy. It's why I want some of the economic leveling that was achieved in the 20th century and a race starting with the inauguration of Ronald Reagan to come back at least, you know, and so that economic reality of, you know, the easier, easier time is also implicitly part of this book. I often say when I talk about it, I feel like all the doors were slamming shut as I raced through them, affordable college tuition, right. um, better grants for um, impoverished kids, better social services, more affordable housing in relationship to minimum wage, which I made some of the time growing up. I should also mention my parents cut me off financially right. when I was 17. So I was a middle-class white kid. I was also really poor, which is part of why. 
this I needed a you know I didn't have much money for a place to live and why I um was just so grateful to land in this magical apartment in which I became a writer in which I wrote so many books so many love letters emails mm. essays graded wrote my own student papers and graded student papers and kind of figured out who I was and what I was here to do and you slept in a closet for 25 years. <laughs> you know, since I'm straight, you can't really call me closet. Right, but right. No. Many, many tacky jokes <laughs> were made long after I'd heard them way too many times. Yeah, no, the, it was a little studio apartment, but with beautiful light, two bay windows in the main room, an eat-in kitchen, and it had a Murphy bed that swung out on a big door to take up that whole main room. I took it off the, took it, took it off the door and folded up on the walk-in closet it swung into. So I had like this tiny little chamber just the size of the bed, <laughs> which was very snug and, um, you know, now would seem a little subpar to me, but was plenty good then, particularly given all the, the kinds of places I'd been living in before. And so, yeah, so I slept in a closet for 25 years. <laughs> you know, uh, things have turned out well for me yes. as a writer, but I... Part of why I was able to go freelance is that I didn't have big materialistic ambitions. You know, <laughs> I'm actually going on book tour wearing more things I got in consignment stores and, mm. and a $29 pair of pants. Mm. And, um, you know, I still just habitually keep my overhead low because as, as said to a, because as I said to a younger writer years back, Living below your means is the secret to literary freedom, which is not to shame the people who are having trouble getting by, right, but just saying, right, right. not developing expensive habits, not saying, oh, I had a good year, so I'm going to go buy expensive things and get in debt, really helped me be free to do what I want to do more than anything else, um, write books. Yeah. Tell me about a couple of the books that you've been reading lately that you'd like to recommend. Well, there's, you know, there's a couple books I've been talking over and over about that I loved so much last year. So I'm going to talk about a third one that I think is one of the best things that came out last year, Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror. I got to read it early because I blurbed it. And on mm. it, I said something I will always stand by that she might be the best young essayist in the United States. I said young just so we don't have to compete because I would never <laughs> compete with her. And in Trick Mirror, we get to see a whole lot of her instead of the small and large pieces we've seen first at Jezebel and the New Yorker. I'm just dazzled over and over again how original she is, how incisive she is, how she's able to explore these nuances of psychic impact of the things happening publicly to travel that distance from this is what happened in the news to this is what it did to my psyche. This is what it's doing to us. This is what it means. Another book I want to do a shout out to is my friend Jarvis Masters' beautiful, underrecognized memoir, This Bird Has My Wings. Jarvis is an innocent man on death row where he's been for more than 35 years in San Quentin, a prison I row past, which is why I decided I needed to get to know him, the absolute freedom of rowing a skull and the absolute lack of freedom of a man in a small cell for his whole, whole adult life was like something I couldn't just let sit there. Mm. And we became friends. He's a Buddhist. He's a joyous person. He's a better person than I am mm. who's 
found the capacity to make a life, become a writer, form friendships, form a Buddhist practice under the worst circumstances almost anyone could ever be in. And part of why I'm mentioning him also is that the great writer David Sheff, author of Beautiful Boy, wrote a book about Jarvis that'll be out later this year. And like with Gia's book, I blurbed it as with Gia's book. It's a huge contribution. The word inspiring has been beaten to death and covered in (laughs) sticky sap. But actually, David told me things about our mutual friend I didn't know. And just seeing what do you do in the worst circumstances possible? How do you find the strength to make really interesting, good choices? When you have the tiniest amount of freedom possible, what can you still do with that freedom? Um, You know, it's pretty remarkable. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.